I kind of pinch myself. Like, I cannot believe I live in a moment where regulators and, and, and policymakers are thinking for the first time about how to deal with a new financial system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues in national security and foreign policy. We're interrupting our usual programming to bring you this special episode as part of NSI's year-long series on the intersection of crypto innovation and U.S. national security. Throughout this year, NSI is hosting a range of conversations between the crypto and national security communities around this technology's implications for U.S. leadership in tech and financial markets for illicit finance and sanctions policy, for privacy and human rights at home and abroad, and for other key national security objectives. I'm John Polson, stepping in as your host for this episode. Every day seems to bring new developments around illicit finance in the expanding digital asset ecosystem. Recent analysis shows that illicit actors are increasingly turning to, to cryptocurrencies as a preferred method for receiving ill-gotten gains from criminal activity, and rogue nation states continue to probe digital currencies as workarounds to U.S.-led sanctions regimes. Governments have also been increasing their vigilance in response to these challenges, as the U.S. Justice Department recently announced the successful recovery of stolen crypto funds from North Korea-backed hackers, and the European Union and the United Kingdom both begin implementation of new rules governing digital assets. Today's episode will feature Ari Redboard, head of legal and government affairs at TRM Labs, a leading crypto compliance company, as he shares his thoughts on these challenges based on his deep experience with digital assets both in public service and the private sector. Ari, welcome to Fault Lines, and thank you for joining us today. Hey, John, uh, thank you so much for uh, having me. Really uh, love the work that you're doing at NSI, but really also honored just given sort of our, our history of working together at Treasury to, uh, to join the podcast. So thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for those kind words. I, I appreciate it. So, so let's get right into it. And, and obviously, you mentioned our, our time together at the Treasury Department, where you most recently served as Senior Advisor to the Deputy Secretary and the Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence where you played a key role developing policies regarding cryptocurrencies, sanctions, and anti-money laundering frameworks. And prior to that, you also served as Assistant U.S. Attorney at the Justice Department, where you prosecuted cases that intersected those same issues. So you've more or less been immersed in the world of illicit finance throughout your professional career. And so after you departed public service, I'd just love to hear about what led you to pursue a career in the cryptoverse and why you chose TRM Labs. Yeah, no, no, love it. And, and great use of, of Cryptoverse there. That, that's awesome. Um, you know, look, you know, I, I think you mentioned some of the history, but, you know, I started out as a prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. Um, and sort of the latter part of my time there, which was about 11 years, uh, really focused on sort of that intersection of national security and money laundering. So what we call threat finance. And uh, more and more often we would see, as you mentioned, rogue nation state actors like North Korea really becoming early adopters of digital assets in order to launder funds. I think what we've seen sort of more recently, and you kind of got to this, and I'm sure we'll touch more on this, is sort of not only just using uh, using crypto for money laundering, but also attacking cryptocurrency uh, businesses and sort of hacks and cyber attacks. Um, I then went to the Treasury Department, where again, sort of focused more from a policy perspective on, on digital assets and illicit finance. Um, so really when I was sort of trying to figure out what was next, I, uh, again, like you, that intersection between national security and crypto was just something that was very, very interesting to me. And really at TRM, we talk about sort of our mission to build a safer financial system. And really what we do is we work with public sector. So we work with law enforcement. We work with regulators globally. Uh, we work with financial institutions and cryptocurrency businesses in terms of law enforcement, sort of in the national security space. Um, where I know is sort of the most interest here, uh, we are primarily used as a forensics or a tracing tool. 
to build investigations, to follow the flow of funds, to ultimately, you know, be in a position as we were recently or as law enforcement was recently with North Korea or in the colonial pipeline case or the Bitfinex hack where you're actually eight, where law enforcement is actually able to use tools to recover funds. So we're an investigative tool. Briefly for crypto businesses and financial institutions, we are part of their anti-money laundering compliance stack. So they're using us to screen wallet addresses, to uh, monitor transactions, to ensure that they're not um, transacting with illicit actors. Because, you know, I know we'll get much more into this, but look, when I'm transacting with John, I want to know that I'm transacting, you know, with a trusted counterparty, not Al-Qaeda or ISIS or a ransomware variant, right? And that's really sort of what what we do at TRM. Yeah. And and obviously that sort of brings us to our first question and, you know, the importance of of your work supporting, you know, financial institution, the government, um, you know, particularly on the financial institution side for KYC protocols, right? And so I think we've seen sort of as the federal government has taken a more deliberate approach to this over the last, you know, let's say 18 to 24 months, you know, a lot of rules that have been implemented, you know, uh, are related to the collection of your customer data by exchanges and financial institutions as they deal with crypto. However, some of these rules are intentioned a little bit with uh, the underlying ethos of crypto, which is, you know, decentralization and a degree of, you know, pseudonymization or outright anonymization. So how do U.S. regulators in partnering with, with industry, you know, sort of square that circle? Yeah, you're starting with the easy questions. I like that, John. Um, so, uh, so yeah, no, I mean, I, I, look, I think this is a real, like, one of those existential questions when it comes to the space and something that, that I sort of personally think about all the time is someone who really does believe in the importance of data privacy and, 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 and personal privacy and, and the liberty that sort of the democratization of finance, the promise of, of all of that. I will say that sort of in the age of the internet, you know, a hack meant the loss of PII, right? Your usernames and passwords and email addresses. In the age of crypto, a hack can mean the loss of life savings or the end of a small business. Um, And I think that's why, look, it's so important that we build in this anti-money laundering or sort of what I would call the trust infrastructure into the system. And there has to be a, a balancing act. And I see regulators, you know, thoughtful regulators attempt to do this every day. I think that's really where so much of the conversation is, is along that line, right? It's we need to foster innovation, but at the same time, we need to protect consumers. We need to stop illicit actors from you know, taking advantage of it. Because look, if I put my money in exchange and I, uh, you know, and, I, and, and it's hacked, I'm not going to do that again, right? I'm not going to put my money back there. Or, you know, if I'm the victim of a NFT rug pull or a scam or a fraud, you know, uh, you know, I, I may not engage again. And in order for this whole thing to work, we really have to build trust in the system. And I think that's that's really, really important. Now, do we need to associate the alphanumeric cryptocurrency address with an individual, you know, no, I think what we, what we do at TRM is we take those alphanumeric addresses uh, the, the, and, and the raw blockchain data, the to, the from, and we associate it with threat intelligence. We layer it with threat intelligence. So we're not associating a crypto address with an individual for any sort of surveillance purpose, really. What we are doing is we're associating with a threat actor like, you know, terrorist financing, or ransomware or child exploitation. Um, and what that allows law enforcement to do is investigate those threats, not associate with an individual. You mentioned KYC, and KYC is sort of something that happens off chain, that sort of know your customer process. You know, large exchanges are treated like money service businesses by FinCEN and really global regulators, the FCA in the UK, MAS in Singapore, really across the globe. And what they require now is that 
uh, these crypto businesses have robust compliance controls. Uh, TRM is not a KYC provider, but we work with KYC providers who are marrying that kind of off-chain data with the on-chain data that we provide, which is that sort of tracing and tracking and, and transaction monitoring. And I say all of that because really the way law enforcement is ultimately able to associate those alphanumeric addresses with individuals is by serving a subpoena or some other sort of legal process on that exchange. So that may have been very long-winded, but I think that at the end of the day, like it's all about walking that fine line uh, between sort of responsible innovation that protects people, right? Uh, with with also sort of maintaining the integrity of the system and, and, their, and, and their real privacy concerns in a financial system that is as open uh, as the one that we're creating here. Yeah. And, you know, that's sort of, you know, that's very great summary there. That's, that's a really great context uh, for, for this. And, and something you mentioned sort of early on is, you know, the impact that this can have on, a, say, an individual's life savings, right? For someone who's invested, say, a significant portion of their savings in, in say, a, crypt, a crypto exchange. Um, and also, same thing for small businesses who may be susceptible to uh, to you know hacks or other you know intrusions from illicit actors, and this brings my attention to a February 2022 report by uh, Coveware, uh, which is a ransomware recovery firm. They found that 82 percent of ransomware attacks in 2021 targeted small businesses. So how can you know groups like like TR, the TRMs of the world and you know competitors like Chainalysis and others, you know, obviously. A small business which doesn't have, say, the resources of a major financial institution or that embedded, say, infrastructure of the federal government, you know, how can they using, say, you know, services provided by TRM and others to protect themselves uh, from potential digital asset, you know, uh, you know, in, intrusive actions, you know, how, how can they you know, be better protected and served? Yeah, no, for sure. I, I think there are a couple answers to this and I'll sort of take them one one by one first. Look, I mean. Cryptocurrency is the the means of payment in so many ransomware cases right now because on the one hand, you know, you can move larger amounts of funds faster than ever before. Um, but crypto is not the cause of ransomware, right? We had ransomware long before crypto and we would continue to have ransomware attacks without crypto. Crypto just makes moving funds easier uh than 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 ever before, certainly cross border. Um but at the same time, I think the sort of interesting thing about crypto is that transactions are more visible than ever before. And we have tools like TRM to sort of trace and track the flow of funds. But I say all of that because sort of ransomware itself is very much a cybersecurity problem as opposed to necessarily a crypto problem. And I think that the answer to, to ransomware starts at least with hardening cyber defenses. And um, quite frankly, like no matter what the size of business is, these days, unfortunately, we live in a world where that has to be a priority. Um, and I think putting together a ransomware plan is just absolutely critical from day one. And that means, you know, engaging a lawyer potentially to sort of quarterback a response before, before there is an attack. It means using an incident response firm in the space, right? Um, and then also TRM has a 24 hour hotline, uh, our crypto incident response hotline, basically, where we will trace um, funds uh, for anyone sort of who's the victim of a ransomware attack or other sort of cyber breach. And that's not for clients. That's for anyone who's the victim of an attack. Um, so, you know, it, look, I think that we're all in this together um, and it's absolutely so important, but I think it really starts with hardening cyber defenses um, because the key to, you know, ending ransomware is stopping the attacks from happening in the first place. And that either means disincentivizing them by making it sort of, I don't know, harder to pay, <laughs> um, or 
ultimately um, being able to show that we can trace the funds and ultimately use tools to um, to season them back. But it's a look, it's a huge, it's a huge issue. And I think, you know, we, we all love to, and I'm the first one to reference like the colonial pipeline attack where there was a successful tracing and ultimately the FBI used tools to seize back those funds. But the reality is this is a scourge that is affecting like, you know, small businesses, as you said, sort of medium-sized businesses, you know, local healthcare providers, right? Um, and I think par- so much of this starts with like day one hardening cybersecurity. Um, and just to put a cap on it, you know, and it really starts with people. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this in the moment, maybe in the North Korea context, but the vast majority of cyber attacks occur from sort of personal engineer, uh, sort of social engineering, where you're attacking individuals and specifically targeting them because they may have information that's valuable, you know, access to private keys, this sort of thing. And so much of it is education, right? The don't click on this type of type of thing. So look, I mean, crypto is involved certainly in cyber attacks and ransomware, but really hardening cyber defenses is the key. And it doesn't matter what size business you are, you've got to do it these days. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned there the importance of education, right? And 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 in my view, that can really be the place where the federal government steps in and acts as that convening authority to bring various people together, various stakeholders, whether you're on the customer side or on the business end, or say on the compliance end, obviously, like you all are a TRM, in order to help, you know, educate people as to importance and, and how to you know access these resources. You know, I remember uh, you know, one incident as a Hill staffer, uh, you know, my former boss, Congressman, uh, is a very rural district, very small business heavy. Uh, one company's district was uh, was getting was breached and was undergoing a hack by a third party. And they were calling our office trying to figure out who, who to get a hold of. Is it the FBI? Is it DOJ? You know, who, who can help us? And you're thinking, you know, again, just for the small businesses that just don't understand who is out there and who can help them. You know, it's critical that government plays that role, whether it's at the you know, federal, state, local level, in order to, to train people and make citizens aware of where these resources are, whether it's a 24-hour hotline that some in the private sector like you all may utilize or just knowing which agencies are in charge of responding to, to which situations. And, you know, do you think that our government can be doing a better job of that, perhaps have a more, you know, deliberate campaign you know, to yeah, it, educate it, people it, better? It, it's a great question. and such an important focus. I will say this, like, you know, to our credit, you know, when I was at TFI, the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence that oversees sort of OFAC and FinCEN and sort of the national security apparatus, and you were at, you were a senior advisor in the Office of International Affairs, I think we were very good at sort of that reaching out, providing guidance, providing advisories to the private sector. I will say that I think they're much better now. Um, Like it has only gotten better, which is a great sign. I think there's a huge emphasis coming out of the Treasury Department, coming out of DOJ on that public-private partnerships. And it's so critical. You know, there there, there have been two, I think, critical executive orders in this space over the last, you know, like six to eight months and, you know, we never had a president talk about cryptocurrency before, and now we have an executive order on it. And what does it say? I mean, so much of it is, hey, we need to work pu- with public-private partnerships in order to, you know, lead internationally, in order to stop bad actors. Um, and the cyber EO, um, even more so, right? Like that brought executives from, you know, U.S. companies to the White House to talk about best practices for cybersecurity. So I think that, you know, um, I, I've engaged in so many working groups and task force and information sharing initiatives with um, public sector uh, that there's a huge focus on right now. Um, this is a little slightly off sort of the cyber topic, but OFAC, 
the Office of Foreign Asset Control, which is the sanctions regulator within within Treasury, in October put out a full sort of pamphlet on sanctions-related guidance to cryptocurrency businesses, exclusively cryptocurrency-related, uh, really talking about how they can sort of you know mitigate the risk of sanctions. I think we're just seeing a much better job. Sure, you know, government can do better with engaging with the private sector, and the private sector could be better engaging with government. But I think we're doing. I think you know, honestly, like we're doing better than I've ever seen it done before. Um, it's just you know, continue to kind of build build that pipeline. Yeah. So let's actually talk about that. You know, we talked about, you know, the rules and cooperation that already exists between, you know, OFAC and FinCEN and, and the private sector, which has, you know, been certainly longstanding, you know, prior to the you know, growth of digital assets. Uh, you know, recently we've seen the European Union and the UK both uh, as they prepare to release new rules, you know, governing anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism, AML, CFT regulations. Um and as far as I can tell, th- these rules appear to be generally well received, you know, by by the industry. And I'd just be curious as to, you know, one, what what your take on that is from a compliance standpoint, but also two, like what can the U.S. learn from what our close friends across the Atlantic are doing in this space? You know, as we begin to consider, you know, whether it's uh, new rulemaking initiatives at the executive branch level, or obviously some of the, you know, comprehensive uh, legislation that's been, you know, recently introduced in the Congress. Yeah, this is like the crypto never sleeps and either do I portion of the uh, of the the podcast today. Like, it, there is so much going on. Like every single day, I, I I see something else that's really extraordinary in in terms of the regulatory landscape globally. And I think like sometimes I just step back and I kind of pinch myself. Like I cannot believe I live in a moment where regulators and 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 policymakers are thinking for the first time about how to deal with a new financial system. And and on the one hand, then you're watching the builders and creators and sort of the the business side, the private sector side, do their thing too. And it's it really is a pretty amazing moment. But the last couple of months have really been extraordinary. And I think you're, you're sort of getting to this. With, with a couple things. One, as I mentioned, you have the executive order coming from the United States, which was, which was a huge deal, really sort of a comprehensive call to the executive branch agencies to sort of figure out how to regulate in the crypto space with, I think, a realization, quite frankly, that there's not going to be a lot of movement towards a comprehensive legal framework for crypto on Capitol Hill. Uh, we recently saw a bill uh, introduced or, or actually just unveiled by Senators uh, Lummis from Wyoming and Gillibrand from New York, bipartisan. That really is the first attempt in the U.S. to create a clear legal framework. In other words, sort of what are the environmental impact we need to understand? How should we deal with the systemic uh, risks around stable coins? How about, uh, how about um, anti-money laundering? Um, how do we even define these things? Are they commodities or securities or what, what's the deal? Um, but to your point, we've already seen a lot of really interesting moment, uh, movement in the last, you know, couple months coming out of places like the UK and the EU. Um, and I think what you're sort of getting at when it comes to Europe is about two weeks ago, we saw an agreement on really the first legal, uh, uh, sort of comprehensive legal framework globally for crypto. And uh, it's called MICA, the Markets in Crypto Assets uh, Legislation. And really what it does is sort of take a crack at, at what Lummis and Gillibrand are trying in the U.S., and that is uh, addressing all of these different issues in one bill. And um, Europe is going to have it. And I think one of the real keys to this is like, you know, and part of, I think, maybe why you see uh, support for these types of initiatives is, look, I think we've moved from hey, maybe we should ban this technology or maybe we should try to stop this to, all right, how do we um, 
regulate and keep consumers safe and keep investors safe, um, but at the same time, ensure responsible innovation. And one real key for Mika in the EU is, you know, I think the key for business is clarity. And what it says is if you meet the requirements to get a license in one EU member state, Spain or Germany or France or Greece, then that license is passportable across all of Europe. And, you know, at the end of the day, when you're a business, yes, you care about regulation, but really, really what you want out of regulation and lawmakers is clarity. And knowing that if they get that license, then it's passportable across Europe and they don't have to sort of deal with the legal and uh, hurdles in every jurisdiction, that's a huge deal. Um, so that's just sort of, you know, happy to sort of jump out and t- sort of talk more about Mika. Uh, you also mentioned the UK, where there's some really, really cool stuff going on around stable coins in response to some sort of collapse of some stable coin projects recently. Um, I think there's sort of one of the more interesting ones that you kind of alluded to in the AML compliance space is uh, recently the UK uh, HM Treasury uh, essentially uh, came out with um, a sort of final consultation on the travel rule. And the travel rule is essentially what says, it says that when you, if you are an exchange or a crypto business and you send funds, you also have to send the know your customer information, the, the data with those funds uh, and share those with a counterparty. And what, why this is so interesting in the UK context is they try to, to walk the line that, that I was talking about a moment ago. And they said, look, you ha- the travel rule has to, has to take place or the travel rule or, or uh, fund transfer information has to, t- has to take place in every single transaction. But if you're dealing with wallet addresses that are not hosted by an exchange, that's an exception. Because technologically, A, that's very hard. And I think that sort of it does create a lot of um, additional obstacles within the, um, within the ecosystem. So I say all of that to say like, hey, look, regulators, I think, are starting to try. Like on the one hand, regulators are trying to be reasonable with their regulatory demands. But I think equally important, the crypto industry is starting to understand that you know, uh, that responsible regulation, reasonable regulation is also going to be an important part to help the sort of crypto economy grow. You know, you, you mentioned the HM Treasury rule in, in the UK, and I kind of want to just go into that a, l- a little bit deeper. And I know you just recently had one of their advisors on your own podcast. So, so hope you can help clarify this for us a, a little bit. Uh, and, you know, I believe just getting into their, their thought process behind why they crafted their rules the way they did. And one of the things they mentioned on unhosted wallets was, you know, just an unhosted wallet is not inherently an indicator of illicit activity. And so that was therefore not the basis for ha- imposing further restrictions on unhosted wallets compared to hosted wallets. You know, playing devil's advocate for a moment, I could just say, well, wait a second. Why would anyone who is, you know, abiding by the rules of society, rule of law, and not committing any crimes, like wh- why would they want to have an unhosted wallet? You know, wh- what could they possibly be hiding? So I'm curious as to kind of what your thoughts on how the UK government reached its conclusions and what sort of lessons, you know, we, we can draw from that. As you know, uh, there is a little bit of unpleasant experience from Treasury's, you know, uh, recent history of rolling out a host, unhosted wallets rule, you know, back in late December of 2020. Uh, you know, the Trump administration attempted to implement a rule and industry strongly objected both not just to the content of the rule, 
but also procedurally as it had a rather short, you know, comment window uh, before it went into that rule, went uh, into the federal register. So sort of talk us through the UK's experience and what their thoughts are on that and what sort and what, how the U.S. could potentially mirror their process as we look to potentially implement that as we go through the various steps of the EO, as you laid out earlier. Yeah, you know, look, I, 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 I usually try to sort of stay away from really opining on sort of specific regulation. I will say in this case, I think the UK really got it right here. And, I, and I'm really hopeful that sort of uh, the US will follow the lead. Um, and that is to say sort of, you know, unhosted wallets are a really important part of the, the crypto ecosystem and um, really are not indicative of illicit finance risk. There are plenty of others where we can sort of have this debate around mixers and other types of things uh, that also are legal, but it's harder to, I think, justify sort of the, 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 licit, um, the licit use case. Here, it's completely different. Look, I mean, if you don't want to hold your funds, look, there's all kinds of reasons you don't want to have your funds in an exchange today. I mean, uh, victim of a hack, um, of a SIM swap, of a rug pull, of all kinds of sort of interesting things that happen. Unsecured creditor. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Great example, right? Like the actual collapse of a project, um, right? We've heard recently from crypto exchanges that if there was a bankruptcy, that you may not get your funds back. I mean, there's no FDIC style uh, insurance for a crypto exchange today. It just doesn't exist. Uh, some have their own insurance up to a pretty small amount. I think we'll eventually see that as the system develops. But the reality is, it is a, it is arguably safer to hold your funds, uh, you know, in a, in a self hosted wallet. Um, and I think we see many, many sort of I, I would say overwhelmingly licit actors who are uh, holding their funds that way. And um, I think the challenge is it's very hard for an exchange or, or, or what, um, what FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, called a VASP or a virtual asset service provider. Europe calls a CASP, a crypto asset service provider. So there's VASPs and CASPs and exchanges and brokers and custodians and ATMs and all kinds of MSBs, according to FinCEN. <laughs> um, but, but the reality is, it's very hard for those uh, intermediaries to gain uh, customer information on unhosted wallets and cre- could create a really significant burden. And that's part of why uh, I think HM Treasury came along where they did. Now, one thing that's really important too is they're not saying these aren't a risk, um, but what it re- or unhosted wallets are not don't present any risk. I think what they're saying is, hey, you have to take a risk-based approach. And that means is understand the risk, right? If you're using a tool like TRM, and you identify an unhosted wallet as associated with terrorist financing, like don't send them funds, right? Like, you know, but, but just inherent, what they're saying is inherent unhosted wallets aren't inherently more risky or more dangerous. And I think it's exactly the right line uh, to draw here. Uh, I think, I think travel rule, knowing customer, you know, transferring customer uh, information is important. It's an important anti-money laundering uh, protection, but I also think that, um, it's, it's really critical to only uh, require information of, of, of those that you can sort of more is, easily uh, get information from, you know, as long as there aren't inherent risks. And I think that, that's really critical here. But I, I definitely, I, I think there's all kinds of good reasons why you'd want to hold your funds that way. Um, and, uh, and, and, and definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the information sharing there. And, and also, we sort of really briefly mentioned that in the cybersecurity context of, of ransomware, right? And, and obviously how just the so the cybersecurity industry has really grown these public-private partnerships with the federal government in recent years to you know enhance their effectiveness. And you also 
going back to the Lummis Gillibrand legislation, one of the things in their bill that they're seeking to introduce is this FinCEN Innovation Laboratory. And so essentially this would be uh, a, a lab where they promote regulatory dialogue and data sharing between FinCEN and financial companies uh, you know, involved in the crypto space. And theoretically, this would facilitate you know, supervision of those, of those laws and help enhance FinCEN's you know, supervisor capacity over this jurisdiction. And we mentioned FinCEN does have a good track record of you know, collaboration with industry, but is this new innovation laboratory idea and which would also create a chief innovation officer role, a new role within FinCEN, is, is that additional layer needed to enhance you know, information sharing and working between say, folks in the crypto industry and the federal government side? You know, is this, is this uh, you know, an effective, uh, you know, effective solution here? So I think, yes. Um, I think, look, it, it's interesting, right? There's a couple aspects to this. First, more information sharing, more conversation between the public and private sector is critical here. I think there's so much subject matter expertise, you know, within the federal government. I, look, I, I hear all the time sort of it being right in the middle of the crypto industry, you know, hey, regulators don't know anything. And um, the reality is, I think you and I know regulators know a lot. If you look at the team at FinCEN in particular, you have really true subject matter experts there who um, who, are, who are great in engaging um, with industry, who are using tools like TRM, who are very knowledgeable on sort of the risks and and, and the promise of, of the technology. Um, but more public-private conversation, the better there for sure. One thing that I think is really unique too, when you talk about a regular like FinCEN is look, you know, the traditional financial system, certainly the, the Bank Secrecy Act, anti-money laundering has always been predicated on these, you know, basically financial institutions, Bank of America, City, Standard Charter, you know, whoever sending their information to FinCEN as in the form of sort of siloed SARS, suspicious activity reports, sort of bad thing happens, you report it to your regulator, maybe law enforcement. You know, when I, when I was a prosecutor, I was on a SAR task force where we like went through, you know, hundreds, thousands of SARS trying to find cases out of them. And it's laborious work. And there's a lot of, of bad SARS. There's a lot of SARS that are hard to read or understand. Um, but But crypto is different, right? Tools like TRM, allow regulators to sort of actually uh, sort of understand and arguably regulate their ecosystem in real time. They don't need to rely on intermediaries anymore, right? You can watch financial flows on the open blockchains in real time. So if you want to understand, hey, look, you know, um, I, you know, crypto.com or Coinbase or FTX or Binance or, uh, you know, whoever is a, regulated entity within our ecosystem. You know, if you are FinCEN, if you're MAS, if you're the FCA, whatever, wherever you are in the world, uh, you can actually understand sort of what are the risks associated with that uh, VASP, with that exchange, with that crypto business in real time. Um, and I think that's so, so much of what the power of, of crypto to really change the way we think about regulating. Um, you know, it's a lot of responsibility for a regulator. There's no doubt uh, but you don't really need intermediaries to report SARS anymore. Uh, they certainly will, and they're required to. Um, but the reality is you actually have tools that can actually help you regulate in real time, which I think is a very sort of significant difference in the space and arguably make investigating easier with sort of visibility that you have on financial flows and potentially can make regulating easier as well with that kind of visibility. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, if I may, with our time left, getting to talking about you know threat actors at the nation state level, right? We talked about 
North Korea. Um, I'm going to get into, you know, Russia and Ukraine a little bit later on. But, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, the typical threats at the nation state level that the U.S. looks at, and this is across the last several administrations, you know, we have Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and Venezuela. And, you know, we know Venezuela has even toyed with this idea, right, of, you know, a, you know, a petrodollar, if you will, I forget the exact name that, uh, that Maduro had proposed, but uh, that project seems to have fallen by the wayside as that country continues, you know, it's hyperinflation that's been ongoing for several years. But, uh, you know, you talk about the, you know, I think you alluded to the sophistication of North Korea in this space early on. And it doesn't seem to me at the, at the, at the sort of national media level that gets nearly as much attention, especially in recent months, as, say, Russia. So uh, just putting Russia on the back burner for a moment, why is, how has North Korea developed such a sophistication for exploiting this space for their uh, illicit finance purposes? Yeah, look, it, it, it's... It's critical. I mean, people ask me this, and the reality is they ask, like, well, who else does this like North Korea? And the reality is no one. Uh, they are the best in the world at using crypto for money laundering, at hacking cryptocurrency businesses. Um, and it is a huge national security concern um, and something I do see regulators and law enforcement working to address. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't, you know, we, we talk about it all the time. We could all talk about it a lot more. Um, look, North Korea is a banana republic from, from an economic standpoint. It is a insignificant um, sort of blip on the world's economy when it comes to, you know, um, GNP and, and, uh, and all of that. Um, however, what they have figured out is that you can steal money at the, uh, you know, bank robbery at the speed of the Internet by attacking cryptocurrency businesses and stealing 600 million in, in one instance or, 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 or more to fund weapons proliferation and other sort of destabilizing activities. You know, when we talk about a hack, you know, we usually, we think about sort of, you know, um, uh, stealing funds, you know, by individuals and trying to launder them or, you know, whatever the sort of Bitfinex example, which is a huge amount of money, ultimately billions of dollars. And we can talk about that sort of more, yeah, but yeah. to me, what, to me, what's really, really scary is when those funds from a hack are potentially used for nuclear proliferation, uh, by a totally irresponsible rogue regime like North Korea. And I think that's that's the real concern. Um, but uh, there's a lot of sort of good stuff out there on this. The Center for New American Security, CNOS, uh, did a report a few months ago where, where TRM actually did the tracing and um, on about four or five North Korea-related crypto hacks and showed the level of sophistication even getting better and better with each of those, with each of those attacks um, I've done a couple of TRM talks on this topic where you're t- kind of talking to subject matter experts and they really all say the same thing. North Korea has realized that, look, you know, it is a, it, it is a, not a, a player on the world stage, but on the digital battlefield, you know, if they have professionalized hacking and cyber warfare, uh, and can play with the likes of the United States and Russia and China, and it's really pretty extraordinary and they have built a professionalized cyber unit uh, that, that often goes by the, term, the name Lazarus Group that really um, is constantly engaging in attacks on crypto businesses. Uh, the most recent example is they attacked the Ronin blockchain. It, it's actually they attacked the Ronin bridge, which basically bridges the Ethereum blockchain to the Ronin blockchain for the pay to earn, uh, play to earn game Axie Infinity. Um, basically, the idea is that they've cr- the game has created a bridge 
so people can move funds from the Ethereum blockchain to the Ronin blockchain to make payments faster. Well, recently there was an attack on the Ronin blockchain and the uh, hackers stole about $600 million. And within a week or so, the FBI uh, was able to link that attack to North Korea. Um, that is money that they will use to funds fund weapons proliferation. Now, the good news is you know, law enforcement and regulators are becoming also more sophisticated in the way they um, respond to these types of attacks. One thing that was so cool to watch is that, as you as you know, having been a treasurer, you know, like sanctions don't don't usually occur quickly, right? Like um, it usually takes time, and there's DOJ legal review, and you sit around trying to figure out who the right targets are and what the impact is. One thing that was so cool is after that attack on the Ronin blockchain, Treasury OFAC designated the address uh, that actually the, where the fund, the hacked funds went to and associated with Lazarus Group. It was the first time ever a crypto address associated with Lazarus Group was put on the OFAC sanctions list. But what was really revolutionary is then over the next couple of days, you saw the funds move to a series of three other crypto addresses. All were designated by OFAC almost in real time, you know, within, you know, a day or so. And that was really revolutionary in terms of the way OFAC is using tools like TRM or others, you know, blockchain analytics to roll out sanctions. And then those funds moved through blender.io, which is a mixing service on the blockchain, and blender.io was designated was sanctioned by OFAC. So like on the one hand you have super sophisticated actors like North Korea, on the other hand, I think regulators and law enforcement are getting better with these tools. Um, but, you know, I'll stop here and, and say this. It does come back to your earlier question around cybersecurity, because ultimately we can track and trace and maybe seize if we're talking about these large amounts of funds by law enforcement. But the reality is cryptocurrency businesses need to work to harden their cyber defenses. And the Ronin attack we've learned since was a social engineering attack that was focused on one or, or a few individuals who worked at this entity, at Axie Infinity, at Ronin. Uh, and it was a job that was posted on LinkedIn. There was a job interview process. And ultimately, when this person clicked on the PDF link to continue to pursue that job, that was when the attack was launched. Um, so the reality is like, look, we can do all the crypto tracing and all the blockchain forensics that we want. But at the end of the day, the key for these crypto businesses is to harden their cyber defenses, um, which is sort of like just going back to kind of, I, I think that first or second question here, um, but super interesting moment. Um, and, uh, you know, look, you're, th this is what NSI does too, right? Like, I think we focus a lot of times on the hacks and the frauds and the scams and the rug pulls, and those are critical, right? Like you can't have those happen um, if the crypto economy is going to grow and flourish, but there are existential threats. Uh, and North Korea presents one of those existential threats. And, and we, we have to do everything we can from a national security process to curb those attacks. You know, that is such a great recap of, of that whole episode. And obviously you mentioned, you know, OFAC's ability to almost designate in real time. I mean, I'm sure the amount of work and, you know, extra cups of coffee and, and late nights that went into that was was immense from uh, your old um, comrades there. Just uh, quickly here as we come up on time, just a couple more questions. And, and obviously I mentioned Russia before, you know, when Russia launched its, its or I should say expanded its war in Ukraine, you know, back in February, uh, there was a great deal of concern, particularly in the Congress, about Russia's ability to potentially evade sanctions by utilizing cryptocurrencies. You know, and we heard commentary from 
you know, very prominent senators, you know, Elizabeth Warren comes to mind um, and others who, you know, seem very convinced that um, even at the nation state level, uh, Russia will be able to avoid uh, evade sanctions by by utilizing crypto. And I think it's been proven uh, in, in congressional testimony from a lot of you know subject matter experts in recent weeks and months that that has proven not to be the case. So, you know, one would just love to hear about how, you know, th- those fears appear to have been, you know, a- abated uh, for, for the time being. Um, but also too, like, what are just some of the, you know, positive takeaways that you may have from watching, uh, you know, th- this, this conflict, although obviously the, the human toll is certainly tragic. You know, we have seen some crypto specific positive elements such as the you know, funneling of humanitarian aid, I believe to the tune of, you know, tens of millions of dollars um, to those in need. And it's been, it's been a real help to, you know, Ukrainian uh, citizens as they, you know, attempt to, you know, flee or, you know, just survive that conflict. So, you know, what are your sort of overall thoughts on on the conflict and crypto's role in it, but also too on the, you know, question of sanctions and Russia's ability to exploit them to, you know, evade, uh, you know, financial punishment? Cool. Yeah, no, I'll start with the positive use case first, then we can delve into sanctions a little bit. You know, look, I, I think really, when we're thinking about sort of the great use cases for cross-border value transfer at the speed of the internet, outside of the traditional financial system, I think Ukraine is a great example. The ability to, as you said, sort of, you know, send humanitarian aid, but also send military aid, um, you know, that goes, that certainly flows outside of any traditional financial system that Russia could potentially, you know, have surveillance on or be able to block. Um, I think that's very, very powerful. Um, I think we also saw some really cool things happen around the crypto community of people sort of banding together and creating, you know, Ukraine DAO and other types of entities to support the resistance movement and the humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. So I think, look, I mean, I think when we talk about sort of the use cases, I think we'll look back at sort of Ukraine as an early use case for being able to send funds, the importance of being able to send funds outside of the traditional financial system. And I think you you nailed the, the sanctions part as well, John. Like, look, I think very early days, and I can tell you, I mean, we, TRM dedicated a lot of time and effort to trying to figure out the, the question around Russia and, and sanctions. Um, we, within the first, I don't know, a few days of the invasion, we offered a free sanction screening tool to anyone that wants it, you know, from a small DeFi company to NFT issuer, just to ensure that at a minimum, when you're talking about compliance, that crypto businesses were screening for sanctions. Um, and that's still available to anyone who who wants to use that just as a quick use it off the internet. Um, so we, we really tried to kind of address this issue, but I think the the reality and, and Todd Conklin, I think said this really well on, on a TRM talks one time, he's the counselor to the deputy secretary of the treasury. He said something like, look, you can't run a G20 economy on cryptocurrency overnight. And the reality is it just, you know, we're not talking about North Korea. We're not talking about Venezuela or Cuba. Right, we're talking about a G20 economy, a massive economy to the tune of trillions of dollars in potential losses due to sanctions. Um, you know, globally blocked funds from a giant central bank. You know, the entire market cap of cryptocurrency doesn't begin to really address the problems that Russia is potentially having when it comes to U.S. EU, you know, global sanctions. Um, however, look, I'm not naive enough to think that sort of sanctioned Russians aren't going to try to use crypto to evade sanctions. Like, of course they are. They have they've used everything to evade sanctions over the years. And like this is not their first rodeo, right? Like you have uh, Crimea, the Crimea sort of sanctions program from you know a few years ago. You have a Russian election interference sanctions. And what we've seen in those cases are the use of shell companies and uh, high value art and, you know, realist London real estate like Miami. Right. Like anything that they can get their hands on yachts and cell phones and 
everything, right? So of course they're going to use crypto. So I think real, but, but on a much smaller scale. And I think the reality is sort of like, or the challenge for, for regulators and law enforcement is, all right, so like, how are they going to do this? And I think the, the consensus is that large exchanges where most of the liquidity is today, right? The, let's call them the Super Bowl advertising exchanges. Um, you know, they have robust compliance controls in place. They have compliance officers. They use TRM. They, you know, they're doing what they do. Uh, they have policies and procedures. They, they have a license. They file suspicious activity reports, right? So bad actors, Russian sanctioned Russians are going to use non-compliant exchanges. And that's why I think we've seen Treasury so intentionally go after SUEX, for example, which was even pre-invasion, which was a Russia-based exchange for allowing ransomware payments to flow through. Or um, Chadex, which was a sister sister exchange of of, uh, SUEX. Or Garantex, which was allowing a disproportionate amount of funds from Hydra Market, which was the largest Russia darknet market at the time, um, to flow through. So- and, and partially those designations, those sanctions were brought because they did not have compliance controls in place to stop illicit activity from flowing through. So I say all of that to say that like, on the one hand, you, ha- you need to like allow the overall illicit crypto economy to grow. And at the same time, I think we need to see regulators continue to really target what again, like Todd, I thought really eloquently called the illicit underbelly of the overwhelming crypto, overwhelmingly illicit crypto economy, darknet markets. Uh, darknet uh, mixers, mixing services that advertise on the darknet. Uh, for example, uh, uh, one called Helix uh, and the other called Bitcoin Fog, which there are pending DOJ criminal cases against both of those, uh, against darknet markets like Hydra, and then against sort of like these non-compliant exchanges. So it's kind of a one-two punch, if you will. Uh, but I think the reality is like when you're talking about sort of the Kremlin or Putin or Russia, it is impossible to use crypto to evade sanctions. But when you're talking about like smaller sanctioned Russian, you know, actors, oligarchs, of course, they're going to try to use crypto. And it's sort of I think it's it's our job to try to stop them from doing that. No, Eric, I mean, th- those are just great examples there and, and super illustrative for our purposes. And, and you know, we hope that, you know, our, our audience listening to this, you know, finds these explanations so helpful because, you know, we've seen these references in the news, but you're, you're, the way you're able to distill this for us is, is really great. And so on the sanctions question, I want to end our, our, our podcast today with this. So um, there, there is competing schools of thought right now in the foreign policy community um, that the United States has become over-reliant on sanctions as a part of you know, our foreign policy toolkit. Uh, I'd just be curious as to you know, where you see digital currencies going forward you know, in, in that debate. Um, is, is that going to factor in? Uh, can we see the rise of, of crypto as an opportunity to have a more effective sanctions regime? And we know that um, even before the EO, that Treasury and others were grappling with this question already. So sort of how, how do you see you know, sanctions and U.S. foreign policy going forward and, and crypto's role in that um, as we, again, begin to see you know, more of these reports uh, begin to come out from the Biden administration's executive order. I'm glad to see you're not easing up on the questions, uh, e- even for the last one. I, I, I was hoping this would be more of a softball, John. Look, I think the question of overuse of sanctions has been something that has been Treasury's been dealing with, you know, for three or four administrations. I mean, you know, the only things Trump and Obama ever agreed on is sort of the importance of the use of U.S. sanctions as the primary tool of, yeah, of, of, yeah. of foreign policy. I mean, this is this is not a, a new conversation in crypto. I think you know is is just sort of a new wrinkle in that. 
this idea that, hey, you know, crypto moves outside of the traditional financial system. I think the reality today is that, look, I mean, the, the hegemony of the US dollar is still a very, very real thing in the global economy. And I, I don't see a world in the near future where crypto is able to sort of dramatically affect that. I think it, it, I think, I think one thing that's really important though is, and I think the, the Biden administration in that executive order uniquely gets this. And that is like the importance of U.S. leadership in the world in this space is really, really important. Um, whether it's a central bank digital currency or whether it's, you know, being supportive of U.S. backed stable coins as sort of the way to push forward the sort of U.S. nexus. Um, but I do think that, that the, that U.S. sort of leadership in the world is critical, and this is one of the reasons: is to ensure that our sanctions program uh, is still still remains effective. Um, you know, I think I, I actually think this sort of Russia question. Th- this this is very very early days for this sanctions program, but it's the most. It will arguably be the most robust that we've ever had. Uh, you know, I imagine over the next several months or years, and I think this will be a great test for sort of the power of global sanctions, right? Where you know, this is not Iran where there's disagreement in the world so far. I mean, right now there's pretty tight alignment between the U.S. and the EU and UK and 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 really globally, and and we'll see if that holds. Um, but I think that um, it is it is it still remains very difficult, if not impossible, to use crypto to evade sanctions in any kind of meaningful way. Um, and we'll see how that plays out over the next couple of years. But uh, you know, I I, I, uh, I don't have a good answer for this today, other than to say um, I think we're still determining the impact of sanctions on a place like Russia, and it'll be interesting to kind of see how it plays out. All right. Well, with that, we will leave the conversation there. Uh, Ari, thank you so much for your incredible insights on these timely questions uh, for the crypto and national security communities. Uh, it was a pleasure having you join us today. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. And that's a wrap, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of Fault Lines, which is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason Natsek. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Ruth Zhu for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.